and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 29th of April with me, Ian Welsh. The Innovation Forum Spring Event Series continued this week with the Sustainable Textiles and Apparel Conference Online. It was a great three days of discussion and debate and I'll be following up with some speaker interviews and reflections over the next few weeks. Continuing our coverage of the recent Human Rights and Ethical Sourcing event in London, coming up is a conversation I had recently with Reckitt's David Pettit. We talked about the critical things that companies need to ensure are part of their approach to tackling human rights abuses in their operations and supply chains. And to hear about Innovation Forum's business and climate action event coming up in June, I caught up with conference director Natasha Bodnar. No news this week, that'll return next time. Following this week's Sustainable Textiles and Apparel Conference, next up from the 10th to the 12th of May is Innovation Forum's online event focusing the future of food. And following that, we'll be meeting in person in Minneapolis for our US-focused Future of Food Conference on the 14th and 15th of June. Coming up in early June, from the 7th to the 9th, we have the next in Innovation Forum's Business and Climate Action Events, this time with a focus on how to tackle Scope 3 supply chain emissions. To find out a bit more about the event, earlier this week I caught up with event director Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Hi, Ian. How's the event coming together? Yeah, it's coming together really well. It's uh, fast approaching, but I'm looking forward to it. going to be a good few days for sure. What should delegates expect at the event? It's a three-day virtual event, so you should expect honest and open discussion and debate, obviously with climate being the top of our most people's agendas at the moment. People can expect that there's going to be some great discussions. We've got some really fantastic sessions and speakers lined up for the event. It's all being held on a platform which enables you to easily connect with people. So in terms of if you want to continue the conversation outside of the room, it's easy to have. We've got some networking sessions that are also set up. Help you meet those new faces. Otherwise, it should be a good three days. It's worth pointing out that the conference platform does allow for meetings to be set up, but you're not having to give away your own personal contact details. You can arrange the contact and initial meetings via the conference platform itself. What are the sessions and panellists that you're looking out for that you're looking forward to seeing? One of the new sessions or new speakers that we've just had join a session is actually the opening session of the day, which is setting the scene a little bit, looking at whether net zero represents too narrow of a target to adopt as a business strategy. And on that session, we've got Rob Cabron with Nestle, as well as Joanna Glutzman with PC Cousins, which I think is just going to be a really nice way to start things off. In terms of the sessions that we're seeing that are perhaps getting more attention, the roadmap session, which is going to be looking at credible path to net zero. We've got a really great speaker lineup on there with a lensing, Carbon Trust, Unilever and Nestle, which I also think is also going to be a good one to start things off to get things going. That session you mentioned initially, that's the first day, isn't it? So that's going to be kind of setting the scene for the event. What are you seeing emerging as you're bringing together the conference? What are the kind of key agenda themes that you think are going to emerge? Obviously, climate change at the top of everyone's agenda, as you said, but fast moving as well. It is very fast moving. I think in terms of themes, people are just trying to figure out how to meet these targets that are being set. So all the main theme being how to achieve these targets. A lot of that is around the importance of procurement, the engagement of suppliers. We're seeing lots of discussion around that, how best to get procurement involved. And then really starting to think about 2030, what a low carbon supply chain can look like, what the reality is of that and what we can expect. 
How can our listeners get involved, Natasha? You can get involved by registering directly um, through our website. We have a discount deadline coming up at the end of next week. So that's Friday, the 6th of May. You save £100 if you register by then. If you are interested in speaking, we do have a couple of speaking spots still available. We have some reserved sessions actually for sponsors and bespoke sessions. If you have a case study or something that you want to focus on, we have some really actually already great case studies involved already in the agenda, but we do have space for a couple more. It's worth saying that's something that we find is very popular with with the service providers. They can have an opportunity to showcase what it is they're doing, showcase the innovation and the new products that they're developing that help their clients. If that's something that's of interest, do let us know. Okay, Natasha, looking forward to the event. See you then, if not before. See you then. Following the recent Human Rights and Ethical Sourcing Conference in London, I spoke with Brecket's Global Human Rights and Sustainable Supply Chain Director, David Pettit. We considered some of the challenges that companies need to address to find and remediate human rights abuses in operations and supply chains. We're going to be reflecting a little bit on some of the conversations we had at the recent Innovation Forum Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade event in London. David, why don't you start us by giving us a very quick introduction to what Reckitt does. Sure. So Reckitt, we're a global health hygiene and nutrition company driven by a purpose to protect, heal and nurture in the relentless pursuit of a cleaner, healthier world. Many people may not have necessarily heard of Reckitt as a company, but you will most certainly have many of our trusted brands at home under the kitchen sink or in your bathroom closet, be it Dettol, Durex, through to Nurofen, Stressels. So a very complex operations and complex supply chains, I'm sure. For you, what are the key things that companies need to ensure are part of their approach to human rights in their operations and supply chains? Certainly speaking from a record perspective, there is no one size fits all solution when it comes to, to due diligence. And I think over the last five or so years, there's been growing recognition that audit by itself is not the most effective way to conduct due diligence and also not the most effective way to sustain long-term improvement. If we look from a record perspective, our due diligence approach really can be bucketed into three key areas. The first is the traditional audit program, which is pretty much the bread and butter and a key part of business insurance to ensure good labour, health, safety, and environmental practices within our supply chain. However, what we've done slightly differently in record is within our key high-risk markets, we decided to internalise the audit by hiring our own people in these key markets. And this enables us to have a far greater level of visibility of standards within these particular suppliers, but more importantly, actually work in partnership with them to really help them deliver the management system and systemic change required at a site level to ensure that they are delivering sustained improvements. This has certainly delivered quite significant improvements within key manufacturing operations in South Asia, China and the Middle East. So the traditional audit program and, and our sort of hybrid model in terms of how we approach that is key. The second, which is, um, I would say, fairly recent, relatively speaking, addition to our program is the deployment of human rights impact assessments to really get a more holistic understanding of the potential and actual human rights impacts associated with our company's value chain in, in key markets. And what I mean by value chain, I'm talking about, if we take the case of latex, looking at smallholder farmers far upstream in our supply chain through to our immediate suppliers, our own factories and employees, all the way through to the end consumer and the impact that the product has on their human rights and wider well-being. 
And I think these human rights impact assessments really enable you to understand the impacts, and then you can look to, to develop new or enhance existing activity to make sure that you're addressing and more importantly, preventing adverse impacts from occurring. I think also more importantly, as part of this, it enables you to flip the compliance agenda within a business because it enables you to really identify what are those particular human rights issues where you as a business through your operations or brands can really have a positive impact. And again, if I look at the impact assessment we did in Thailand, Durex was examined and obviously that has a huge potential to really positively impact sexual health and rights within a rather complex environment. So it's around how we then flip that round in, in a positive way. So human rights impact assessments are important. And then the final piece really is once you have that holistic understanding of human rights issues, then you really need to look at developing and deploying more targeted interventions or due diligence approaches for specific issues within the value chain, be it modern slavery, be it working hours, be it issues environmental or human rights in Palm or in latex. And a tangible example here, building on the human rights impact assessment that we conducted was we identified through this assessment that one of the key human rights impacts in the latex supply chain in Thailand was more around low rubber prices impacting the right to a good standard of living for latex smallholder tappers. So as a result of that sort of issue, we've partnered over the last year with the Fair Rubber Association. And through that, we're in the process of paying a latex premium for the latex that we source. That will lift incomes. In addition to just paying a premium, we're also directly intervening within the landscape in Thailand where the latex is tapped with our partners, the Earthworm Foundation, to engage a thousand smallholder farmers to improve their farming practices. So they improve their quality and yield, which will enable them to earn a higher income to address ecosystems and biodiversity through regeneration and restoration. And then finally, through enhancing livelihoods by giving them the tools to diversify their income streams. So really, in conclusion, I think across these three areas, I think the key message I would give is that you know, companies need to have a dynamic and ever-evolving approach to due diligence approaches. Let's talk about some things that came up at the event then. We talked about how once a business has got to where you are in terms of taking that holistic approach, there are certain key things that can make big differences. And we talked about grievance mechanisms, we talked about recruitment fees, and then we talked about establishing transparency. So let's consider those three in turn. How should a grievance mechanism be structured? Grievance mechanism is a tricky one. And I think there's been a lot of focus since the UNGPs were issued around implementing grievance mechanisms. But what we found is there was very little practical guidance on how you do this. What constitutes a good grievance mechanism in, in practical form? Last year, we partnered with Oxfam to actually develop a practical toolkit that we could communicate to our suppliers to give them the tools to implement a grievance mechanism that would work for them. And that is also aligned with the eight key attributes that the UNGPs outline as an effective grievance mechanism. So in terms of the structure in the toolkit, which, shameless plug if I may, Ian, will be published externally around mid-year, there are sort of four key areas. First is around having multiple entry points. This can be both informal or channels within a site level. You could also employ the use of a third party, such as an external whistleblower line or something like that, or other organizations that raise grievances. So that's NGOs or media. The second then is there needs to be a single coordination point. In the toolkit, we've coined this as the sort of grievance mechanism officer. And their role really is to acknowledge and to sort of lock the grievance and act as the facilitator within the process. The third area is then deploying a combination of tools and approaches to really assess the grievance raised, to investigate, and then to resolve the grievance. 
And the toolkit, again, provides examples of the sorts of tools that can be deployed. But again, they need to be adapted to the specific conditions of the grievance or the particular country or site in which the grievance is raised. And then finally, closing and monitoring it. Once you've investigated it and you've got a solution, there needs to be a process of implementing it and then ensuring an effective monitoring of that, plus also a right of appeal. So if those that have been aggrieved do not feel that the remediation taking place is effective, there needs to be an appeal process for their concerns to be listened to. Once you've got those in place then, what are the keys to achieving the necessary scale? So yes, scale. We really wanted to develop a toolkit that was scalable few thoughts here. The first is it's important for the sites themselves to develop and implement the grievance mechanism in a way that works for them. If the site or the supplier or community don't own the process, it will not be scalable in the long term or effective. The second, and this was critical as we piloted, the grievance mechanism must be developed through engagement with the people that are meant to be using it. So too many times companies and organizations say, here's the survey, here's the grievance mechanism, but they haven't actually consulted the people that that are meant to be using it. So worker engagement is key. The third, I would say, is try to enhance or integrate it into existing processes. Because again, if it's an add-on, it's more likely to be dropped or seen as yet another ask or yet another compliance burden. Fourth, I think, is cost-effective. There are many tech solutions out there, but if it's expensive, it is, again, potentially not scalable when we're looking at how we engage and roll it out to our suppliers more widely. Let's just take an example then of what should a particular grievance being raised translate into action? What's the kind of process? The first thing is what we have once a grievance is raised is investigation. As part of investigation, it's the role of the grievance officer to really assess what has happened, what the issues were, who was responsible, and also what are the potential solutions that could address the issue. Consultation with the person who raised the grievance is key as part of that process. And in more mature sites with more mature grievance mechanisms, there may even be an independent grievance committee that comprises of both workers and management that would oversee the process to ensure it's progressing well. After investigation, then it's resolution. And that involves, again, discussing with the person who raised the grievance. And again, they can be represented by colleagues or a trade union representative or someone else and say, outline the outcome of the investigation and the potential solutions to make sure that it's something that is aligned with their expectations. If the person who's raised the issue accepts it, then great, you can move forward to implementing it and then monitoring and closing it out. If not, then there's obviously an appeals process that I mentioned earlier that they would look to, to go through. That's a very comprehensive overview on what a good grievance mechanism looks like. We talked about, a little bit about recruitment fees, big issue in human rights, labour issues, trafficking. Why, David, is eliminating recruitment fees so important? The payment of excessive recruitment fees is a form of modern slavery. I think we're all aware of that. Recruitment fees really are fees paid to a range of actors within the migrant worker supply chain to secure employment. And that involves transportation fees, passport visa processing fees, medicals, also a whole range of service fees as well. And the fees that workers can incur can range from a few hundred dollars up to five, six thousand US dollars, which can take many years to repay. Because of that, a lot of migrant workers have incurred debt. And as a result, they are put in a position where in effect they're indebted and are therefore more vulnerable to exploitation through lower wages, longer working hours, poor employment and living conditions. If you're concerned about recruitment fees, what are the signs to look for? When it comes to responsible recruitment, that this is slightly more difficult to identify. It's not as obvious as passport retention, long working hours, delayed wage payments, which you can easily check through an audit. 
a lot of these poor recruitment practices are happening deeper within the supply chain. And in order to identify cases of recruitment fees and how to address it, you need to increase the visibility of the migrant worker supply chain and practices within it. And this is why last year we partnered with the Coca-Cola company and supported a service provider called Diginex Solutions to develop an online solution that involves a cascade of a recruitment self-assessment down the supply chain, validated by an integrated worker voice survey to enable us to start to have visibility of the actors within the migrant worker supply chain, the recruitment practices being implemented, and therefore then the potential areas of risk that we as a company need to then focus on to take more targeted action to promote a fairer, more ethical form of recruitment. You're involved in a project that, that included an element of repaying of fees. Why should these be repaid and how should that process be gone about? A lot of companies talk around training and preventative action around raising awareness of responsible recruitment, but ultimately the UNGPs talk around access to remedy. And the only way when it comes to recruitment fees, you truly give workers who have paid fees access to remedy is by ultimately repaying the fees to them. So a couple of years ago, we identified a third-party manufacturer in Malaysia, which was shared by a company where around 200 to 250 migrant workers have paid recruitment fees. We collaborated with the supplier and the other customer or peer company and employs the help of a third party mediator to really go to the site, understand the recruitment practices of the site, but more importantly, the recruitment practices that many of the migrant workers had experienced through the journey they made from their home country to the host country, understand the fees that were paid, and then really sit around the table after the investigation and talk around, okay, what is the scope around repayment of fees? Should it include current or historic workers? Talk about the amount. Many workers don't have receipts for the fees that they've paid. We generally took an average fee that workers claim to have paid from various countries and committed to paying that. And then finally, making up the repayment over a period of time. That repayment was sort of split between all the parties involved. The supplier has the primary employer with contributions from Reckitt and the other customer company. And I guess it's important to ensure that the money does, in fact, get to the worker. If these workers have been exploited, it's important that it is paid directly to them. Exactly. And this is why, in addition to agreeing that, we have a quarterly assessment process by which our third party would go in, they would review all the bank statements and payments made to workers, they would interview them. So there has been a robust quarterly review process to ensure that the payments have been made in line with the plan and that workers are receiving them. Clearly, to achieve all of this, companies require supply chain transparency. That can be very daunting. Do you have any thoughts as to the best way to go about doing this? Where, for example, would you start? Just knowing who you, what you buy and who you buy it from is key. That is actually no mean feat, and a lot of companies struggle to even get that level of visibility. Once you have an understanding of what you buy and where from, there's a high-level risk assessment you can do to really understand you know, what are the key sustainability risks and opportunities within particular commodity supply chains or within particular geographies. There's a range of public information or private companies that give you that sort of risk information. Once then you've prioritized really your high-risk areas, you can then really focus on them for more direct and targeted engagement, be it in commodity supply chains such as palm or geographies such as the Middle East. And then really it's two key elements underneath that, traceability. You really then need to engage to get traceability from your immediate supplier right down in the case of palm to the plantation. And you could do that through manual discussions with suppliers and cascading that requirements down the supply chain. You could also use technology, blockchain and service providers such as SourceMap in order to increase that visibility. The second then is, once you have that visibility, is conducting due diligence. And that's when 
deploying tools such as DigiNex Lumina I mentioned earlier, on the ground interventions or worker surveys can really help you understand the issues in the supply chain and then take action to address them. Other key area to consider here really is engagement with NGOs. We do not know everything. So really engaging with NGOs in an open and transparent manner enables us to make use of their expertise to really help us or to complement the activities that we're doing. And then finally, if I may, I think being transparent on our risks, opportunities, successes and challenges are key because really transparency will enable us to share or show our stakeholders that although there are issues in our supply chain, we as a company or you as a company or whoever are really committed to looking for the issues and then being open around what they're doing about them. We're increasingly seeing due diligence legislation establishing stricter rules for companies and human rights or for companies on human rights. What should a due diligence approach look like? And in particular, what are some of the unforeseen consequences that business should look out for and avoid? I think legislation has an important part or role to play, I would say, in levelling the playing field as sustainability in the broader sense could no longer be seen as optional, but something that is absolutely, absolutely mandatory. And what we've seen over the last, obviously, five to 10 years is a plethora of environment and human rights legislation coming into force. These have primarily been around mandating companies to report on their activities, such as the UK Monslavery Act or the Californian Transparency and Supply Chains Act, etc. But there's been very little teeth within this legislation about what form of due diligence companies need to conduct, such as the UK Monslavery Act, for example. You could state in your statement, we do nothing to identify and address monslavery, sign it off by the board, and then technically that's compliant with the Act. So what we're seeing now is obviously a maturing of legislation and new legislation coming into force, such as the European Union Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, that is actually now starting to mandate the due diligence that companies are meant to conduct and then penalties for non-compliance. I think this is welcome. However, there are a few watchouts I would like to share, really. I think There is a need now for harmonization of legislation around the world, because again, we're seeing similar legislation popping around all over the place. And from an operational company perspective, it's quite difficult to keep track of it all and then have slightly amended statements or programs to meet the intricacies of the various legislation, despite the fact that most of them being fundamentally the same. The second area really is transparency. I think we need to make sure that there are protections in place for businesses that are transparent of the human rights or environmental issues within their value chain and what they're doing to address it. We just need to make sure the legislation doesn't penalise them by imposing penalties for these issues being present or preventing them from exporting or entering particular markets. And then finally, and this is more from an internal business perspective, is, is perception. There is a risk that if there is increasing legislation, is that sustainability moves to being seen as a compliance activity. And then as a result, businesses will potentially could go only as far as the law requires them to go. I think from a record perspective, we see sustainability as a great enabler of driving resilience in the supply chain, in the consumer markets in which we operate, providing us opportunities to differentiate, which ultimately results in long-term business sustained performance. And it also enables us really as a business to support our purpose as a company, to really understand how through our business and brands, we can really be agents of change and drive significant positive impact. So there are just a few of my reflections. Legislation is short is good, but a few watch outs in terms of harmonization, transparency, and how it is perceived within business. 
Certainly, for me, the most important thing, or a very important thing, is that legislation should not mean that businesses have to stop operating in high-risk regions. Those are the regions that you want progressive business to be involved in, helping remediate the problems. The legislation isn't designed to do that, but there's perhaps an unintended risk that that might occur. David Pettit, thanks very much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget also to take advantage now of the £100 discount on tickets for the upcoming Business and Climate Action event coming up from the 7th to the 9th of June. Everything you need to know about this and all the Innovation Forum Spring Event series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.